As of late, um, that moment included, um, 1998, you were in those waters with me, baptizing me, Mark. Um, this past Wednesday, we had a service here at the church, I'm just trying to give a picture of what this summer is going to be like for this sanctuary and the church that's now going to be worshiping in the gym for a few weeks, starting on Janu- uh, January, June 16th. Um, yes, we may wish for a new season, but not quite that much. Um, another big one yesterday, I don't know if you know Tom and Mike Smith, but they were ordained into the ministry right here. And I remember four years ago, standing in that very spot and hearing that charge to be a minister of the gospel. A lot of things to remember jog my memory. It's important that we remember to look back on where we've been, to recognize where we are and what lies ahead in the future. Uh, As Brady said, we're looking at the book of Galatians today, and you may not be familiar with the Bible much, but you probably know Galatians isn't in the book of Acts, so it might be a little confusing. That's okay. Um, It's important to remember, though, how we got here. It's important to remember and look back that in the beginning God created all things, that there was nothing and he spoke and matter came into existence, that when he spoke, chaos came into order. And even in that perfect order, when God had ordained things to be a certain way, humanity went outside of those boundaries And we have the fall of Genesis 3. It's important that we remember, even in the midst of what seems like a very broken situation, and let me tell you, it is, it was, that there was a promise. It's important to remember that even before the law was given, God called out to a man named Abram and called him to leave his homeland and go to a place yet known. And it says in Genesis 15 that that Abram believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. There was something about Abram that caused him to hear the words of God, to see God moving and to trust him, to put his hope in him, to desire to obey and follow him. There was something going on within him. We see... Not too long later, a few hundred years or so, the people of Israel have grown and they are in the land of Egypt. And it's time for them to leave. God has heard their cry in the midst of slavery and they are being called out to worship him in the land that he has prepared for them. And in Psalm 78, we read things like this. They forgot his works. And the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea to let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. 
He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock. He caused waters to flow like rivers. In a few verses later, he goes through all of the mighty works that he did in Egypt. And then over and over, this phrase is uttered, yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Verse 37, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. And yet, he was compassionate. It's important to remember who God is what he has done, lest we forget and harden our hearts as Israel did over and over and over. Not long after they're led out of Egypt, um, they, they have these judges, the string of judges that go through to lead Israel. Israel goes through times and periods where they do worship the Lord their God. And then, for whatever reason, they decide to worship foreign gods. They sin against God. They forgot God. And their hearts were hardened. And God sends judgment. And then in the midst of judgment, they cry out, Lord, help us. Lord, save us. And when he sees their hearts humbled before him, he does just that. He delivers them from their oppressors. And you'd think maybe out of gratitude or out of just being aware of the past that they have just been through, they might worship the Lord their God for the remainder of their days and it just doesn't happen that way. Over and over we see Israel harden their hearts and turn from the living God who had done such great works in and amongst them for many generations. And 1 Samuel, we see a young shepherd boy. He was nothing to look at in appearance, but God said that he doesn't look at the outer appearance, but he looks at the heart. Saul, the, the first king, he was, he was great. He was strong. He was a mighty warrior. He, he looked like the kings of the surrounding nations, but David, a young shepherd boy, nothing to look at. How, how could he be king? We've got to remember that God looks at the heart. And over and over, for the remainder of the kings that follow after David, we see mostly kings that turn from God. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Except for one, at least one, Josiah, a great king. He was pretty young, actually. Um, and it says this, that while they were um, going about trying to fix the temple, they find this book of the law in chapter 22. And when the king heard the works of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Achaim, and Sephaim, and Ekbor, and the son of Micaiah, and Sephna, and the secretary, and Esaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book, that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. And then God spoke, recognizing what had happened within Josiah. Regarding the words that you have heard from the book, because your heart was penitent, that it was 
repentant, that it was humbled. And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you before your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in space, in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disasters that I will bring upon this place. Something was different within Josiah. And if you remember, there's kind of two options. There are those who have hearts that are humbled before the Lord, who trust the Lord, who have faith in his promises, and then you have those who forget. They don't remember, and their hearts are hardened before God. And we get the story. That even as Moses gave the law, the Ten Commandments and all 613 other commandments found within the Old Testament, we see a picture of the righteousness of God, this perfect holy standard, and yet no one is able to keep it. Even those who are declared right before God, who are justified by God because of their trust and their hope and their, their faith in God, they themselves sinned. You know many of the great heroes of the Bible. Their story is not a perfect story. None of them. There has not been a single person in the Old Testament who ever perfectly obeyed the law of God. But God made a promise that he would bless the world, all nations, through the offspring of Abraham. He made a promise in Jeremiah 31 that he would make a new covenant with his people, not one written on stones, but written on the heart. Because if you remember, there's a heart problem. And the law, if anything, exposed that heart problem. It showed the perfect righteous standard of God and the sinfulness of humanity. The law revealed the curse we were under, and we need God's help. We need him to intervene. We need him to send one like Moses, but far greater than Moses. We need him to send one like David, but far greater than David. We need him to send a suffering servant to take away our sins, not just cover them up, but to like take them away and forgive us of our sins. We need a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer, not for a little amount of time, but for good, forever. And on to the scene comes Jesus, born in a small town, the city of David, raised in some village named Nazareth, and he grows up. And never before had something been done like he did. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. All the laws, you line them up with his life. Every single day, every breath, every thought was obedient. He was faithful. He was righteous before God. In his perfect, sinless life, Jesus had the righteousness of God won. He was the righteous one. He was the one promised long ago, the offspring of Eve who had come to stomp the head of the serpent. He was the one promised, the offspring promised to Abram through whom all the nations would be blessed. He was the one, the prophet, like Moses, but far greater than Moses. He was the one in the line of David who was going to come and rule, not a worldly rule like we might think of other kings in the world, but a 
rule that was now and forever, not just one place in the Middle East, but for the whole universe. He was king of it all. And then, the surprising part, he died. Willingly, he died. Nobody took his life. He willingly gave up his life because he didn't just come to win the righteousness of God, but he came to take away the sins of humanity. He came to free us from the curse of sin, which was revealed by the law, the righteousness of God seen in the Old Testament. We both have something taken away, this curse, this sin, and we have something given to us. God's righteousness is given to us because of Jesus' sinlessness. That we have new life because Jesus didn't stay dead in the grave. We celebrated Easter, seems like a long time ago, really wasn't. We celebrated Easter because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. No, early on that Sunday morning, oh, so long ago, there was nobody there except a messenger. And he spoke, and a whisper began to spread throughout the land. Just a whisper. And then stories began to spread that people had seen Jesus. Could it be that our despair might have an inkling of hope? And then they saw him, and they touched him, and they ate with him, and they heard him. For many days he showed himself to many people until the time came which he foretold in which he ascended back to the throne where he rules still today and the apostles were left there awestruck. Okay, what do we do now? And they wait. And they pray and they wait. And they pray and they wait. And then they're in this small room on Pentecost. And by the way, happy Pentecost Sunday everyone. Yes, Brother Anthony did remind us all. (laughs) Hopefully you have all been checking your church calendars. Um, If not, you can get on the Anthony email list and he will keep you up to date. Um, But on Pentecost, some 2,000 years ago, something like flaming tongues of fire began to fall down. And what Jesus said would be far better for them than for him to stay, that he needs to go so that my spirit can come. And it falls upon the apostles and they begin to speak the word of God as fulfilled in Christ. And all the people who were there celebrating began to clamor. What is this? What is going on? There was a bit of confusion, though they were hearing the message in their own native tongue. And Peter rises up. And he preaches the gospel. The good news, which wasn't so good news for most of those hearers at the time. Peter preached that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. That he's the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for, the deliverer they needed, who wasn't just going to cover over sins temporarily, but forgive them as far as east is from the west. And you killed him. And you killed him. And they're left there wondering, okay, like, we're, we're on board. We get that he's Messiah. You've convinced us. But, like, what do we do? You're saying he's not here and we killed him. Like, are we done? Is there no hope for us? There is. 
You see, they began to believe as the Holy Spirit drew them through the preaching of the gospel and began to work within them, they had faith. And Peter responds to their question of what shall they do with repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And nothing is the same after that. Thousands are baptized into Christ. They put on Christ in that moment. They died to their old life and are raised to a new life. Remember? It's important to remember. And then they go and the message continues to spread. It doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. Those people were from many, many places. And they go and take that message to their homelands. And the apostles continue to spread the message. And though there are some that try to sequester that message that doesn't work because the Holy Spirit is beginning to move. The promises of God are being fulfilled and there's nothing that can stop God when he is moving, when he has a plan, when he puts his will to this, this church. This church which went through some difficult times. One of the brothers early on was stoned because his belief that Jesus was the Messiah whom all had to put their faith in. Stephen was his name. And many, as they heard him preach that Jesus was the Messiah, and just like the prophets of old whom you killed, you've killed the Messiah, they, many of the Jews didn't want to hear, and so many of them take off their cloaks, put them at the feet of a man named Saul, and they stone Stephen to death. Saul, great persecutor of the church. Household name, not for the right ways for the Christians. Very zealous for the law. Very smart. Very passionate about Yahweh. Don't be fooled. It's easy for us to make fun of the Pharisees, to put down the Sadducees, to think that the Judaizers were stupid for missing the truth about Jesus and how we're actually made right with God through faith in Jesus alone. But that's just lazy. Remember God had established like an eternal covenant with Abram? That all who would be part of the people of God would have this eternal sign with God? That they'd be circumcised, all the males on the eighth day, to show that they are part of the people of God. You remember that? That somehow that changed just because the Messiah had come? I thought the Messiah was the fulfillment of that. Not everyone believed that Jesus was the Messiah, so Saul and a bunch of his friends tried to make the church go away because they believed they're blaspheming. And you remember, don't you remember what happens when we turn to false gods? God doesn't seem to like that. He sends judgment. It doesn't go well for us. And then you have some on the other side who accept that Jesus actually is the Messiah, but we should probably hold on to the law. <laughs> God gave it, it's good, it's perfect. It's the righteousness of God given to us. We need to continue to obey it. And so we have a conflict. Two conflicts. One, the church has begun to be persecuted. And number two, there's division within the church as to what it looks like to follow Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And God takes care of the first problem, at least in part. Saul is walking along a road to Damascus, and Jesus himself comes to him and reveals himself to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's life is never the same. He believes. 
His heart is changed. He's baptized. He puts on Christ. His faith in Jesus is sure. He's baptized into this new life, and he goes from persecuting the church to spreading and planting churches. It's difficult for some of the churches in the surrounding areas to accept him. They're a little scared of him still, but over time, it begins to change. The message changes. And in Acts 9, we see that story begin to unfold. And from Acts 9 to Acts 14, Paul and Peter at times begin to preach the gospel in different places. Many years pass, up to 15, 14, 15 years pass from the time that Pentecost happened and Acts 15 comes along. The text which we actually had just finished. Acts 15, where the controversy of the Judaizers had come. What do we do with the law? Should we require the Gentiles to be circumcised or not? The group of the Judaizers, these people who were, okay, again, faithful to Yahweh, really cared about his law, okay, good things, didn't quite understand what it looked like to follow Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And they said things like, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. By the way, not the gospel. Galatians is Paul's answer to that question. Open up in your Bibles with me to Galatians. Um, what we're going to do with the time we have remaining is I want to you, give you a, a snippet, <laughs> uh, a, a bit of a summary of the book of Galatians. It's short, only six chapters. Um, but you can spend a long, long time studying it. It'll be worth your while. Galatians chapter 1. Um, the very first line, we see that Paul is trying to set up a foundation for his authority. He's not sent from man. His message is not for man. No, he has been called by Jesus himself. And therefore, he carries the authority of Jesus. He was sent by Jesus. Like I said, Tom and Mike yesterday had their ordination to where they've been now sent out, commissioned to do the work of ministry in, an, in Stillwater and around the world, wherever the Lord may lead them. And you might remember part of the problem of Acts 15 is that there was a group of people who had not been sent out and yet went anyway. People who believed that you were not justified, you were not saved, you were not right before God unless you were circumcised, unless you obeyed the law of Moses. And they went out, not on behalf of the church of Jesus, but on their own. They hadn't been sent, they just went, and it's a big problem. They begin to confuse many of the churches that we read about in Acts chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. The churches in Galatia. And before the Jerusalem Council comes in Acts 15, we have Paul writing this book to the Galatians. And he says this, the most important verses from Galatians chapter 1 start in verse 6. Read along with me. I am astonished. I'm marveling. I'm perplexed. I'm not going to say I lack for words because it's Paul. He does not. But he's very, 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 has a lot of turmoil going on because they've so quickly turned away from the gospel that he preached. You so quickly are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, 
But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who had come to fulfill the promises of God. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, the one that Jesus gave us, by the way, if we preach anything other than Jesus Christ coming into flesh, perfectly obeying the law, then dying in our place for our sins and not staying dead, but resurrecting from the dead and now reigning on high as king over all things. You hear any message other than that? Let those people who are teaching it be accursed. Let them be accursed. You might think, okay, he's just talking a little church discipline. They'll, have a, they'll come to a Ryan School of Theology class. They'll be fine. Not the weight of the word accursed. The word accursed is a lot heavier than that. It's a lot more like eternal destruction. These people who are teaching a false gospel other than the one that Jesus himself had given to us are on a path to eternal destruction, which means that those who hear them are potentially on a path to eternal destruction. There is one gospel, and it is worth protecting. Paul doesn't usually uh, hold back many times as his writing. In Galatians, is his most angry of letters. He is quite frustrated with the Galatians and with whoever it is that's leading them astray. And not just because he's worried about his ego and he wants to be the most important teacher in Galatia, but because there are eternal and immediate ramifications to turning to a gospel other than the one that has been accomplished by and given to Paul by Jesus Christ himself. There could be nothing more important than this. There's a weight to that that's serious. It's eternal. Chapter 2 holds probably the most important verse in the entire book. Um, Chapter 2, verse 16, reads like this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. A person is not declared righteous before God by works of the law. A person is not in right standing, in good standing, in a great relationship with God based on works of the law, based on how obedient they have been. But they are justified. They are declared right. They are now righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made right with, declared righteous by faith in Christ. Based on our allegiance to Jesus. Based on putting our hope and our devotion and everything about us and giving it over to him as our king, as our savior, as our deliverer, as our perfect sacrifice, not as a covering, but as a complete removal of sin. And then he, because he is the righteous one who has won righteousness from God, has now given that gift to us. Grace is a gift that is to be reciprocated with a life of faith and good works Not as a means to save yourself because you've already been saved in and through Jesus Christ alone. 
It is through faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not a single person will be justified by works of the law. In chapter three, it expands on that idea. It answers really two questions. Number one, how is somebody justified? How is somebody made right with God? That's the question of chapter three, really the whole book, but chapter three goes after it pretty hard. And if it's not by works of the law, then why was the law given? I don't understand. I I thought we were supposed to obey this, and if we obeyed this, there was life. That's what Paul's trying to go after, and I would love to go verse by verse. This text, this chapter is so rich, we just can't. So don't take my word for it. Go home and read this text, study over it, dissect it, ask questions about it, but trust that I've also done those things. And what I've prepared for you is true because of who God is and what he has done. The big question of chapter three is this. How are we justified? Either by our own works, by our own merit, or by the works and the merit of someone else. We've already remembered, we've already looked back, there's been nobody ever who has perfectly obeyed the law of God. Nobody has been declared righteous because they're good enough, because they're obedient enough. Nobody except for one. Nobody except for one. So if righteousness were attainable through works of the law, then guess what? Jesus died for nothing. If when, Jesus, when God gave us the law, that was the means by which we were going to have a good relationship with him, we would be declared righteous with, before him, by him, then Jesus did not need to die. That was a waste of his effort and time and blood. But we know that Jesus did not die for no purpose. Because no one is able to perfectly obey the righteous requirements of God and are thus under the curse of sin. All of us, right? And this is Romans 3.23. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages, what we deserve because of that sin, is death. Brady um, read a great text that we are dead because of sin, because of that curse. We are dead and lifeless. Therefore, justification comes through faith and not by works. In fact, that's really true of the entirety of the scriptures. As you trace back the story, how were some of them declared right before God? How were some justified? If you read Hebrews 11, it's pretty clear. They also were right before God because they had a humble heart before God. Because they had faith in God's promises. Even before Christ had come, they looked forward to the time in which the law would be done away with and they had communion with God. That's how Hebrews talks about what the Old Testament um, faithful they did. So what was the law for? Why did the law come if salvation is not by means of the law? What was it? Number one, The law highlighted the curse of sin and even increased the trespass against God. The law, what it did was like show us what sin was. Here's the righteousness of God. Here's how holy he is. Here's how perfect he is. By the way, that's going to naturally show us how sinful we are. How hopeless we are because of sin. And how much we need God to intervene how much we need God to fulfill his promises, 
how much we need God to put on flesh and dwell among us so that it's not just the blood of bulls and goats temporarily covering over for sin, but that something would happen where God would intervene and forever and always and finished take away our sin. And beyond that, give us the righteousness that only he has to give us his holiness so that we have hope beyond only this life. Uh, it's, it's something that seems simple, but something I feel like I've had to relearn this week as I've studied. Uh, anyone have children in here? Okay, good, zero people. We're all childless. Um, anyone here have children and have rules for their children? Anyone in here have children and rules for their children, and because you have rules, that automatically fix them. I can tell Sophie till I'm blue in the face. That is not true. I know Drew Bambro. No, that's, that's not true, Stephen. Um, I can tell Sophie till I'm blue in the face. The rules that we have in our home, I can be consistent. I can be gentle. I can be tough. I can be very, very clear to her four-year-old level what the rules of the Ebert home are, and it does not fix her selfish heart. I can't make Canyon be kind to his sister and think more about her than himself. The law is like a cage. <laughs> and on one side, you have a lion who's very, very hungry. On the other side, you have a juicy lamb. You can keep the lion from the lamb because of the cage, but you cannot make that lion not be hungry. It's just not how it works. The law was never meant to give us life. The law was never meant to change our hearts. The law only revealed to us our sinfulness and our need for God to intervene and do something. That is what the law did. That is chapter three, just a light chapter. But chapter 4, look in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is reminding them that they don't need to go back to that old life. They don't need to go back to that old life of slavery under the curse of the law because I've been set free. Read chapter 4, verses 3 through 7 with me. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When we were children, Paul says somewhere else, we thought like children. We just didn't know better. Before Jesus came, all we knew were the promises of God, at least a few people, and the law of God. We were under the elementary principles of the world. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, when God deemed it to be the perfect time, he sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, to win back, to pay a price and secure freedom for those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Only through faith in Jesus can people have hope. 
Only through faith in Jesus can people have like a new identity. Can they have a new heart? Only through Jesus can we have the very spirit of God come and dwell within us. And then chapters 5 and 6, Paul does a little bit of uh, housekeeping to continue to make sure that the Galatians know how stupid they are for turning to a different gospel and to make sure that those who are teaching false doctrine understand how cursed they are. Read with me in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, he who fulfilled the promises of God, this Jesus has set us free. We're no longer under the yoke of slavery. We are no longer under the curse of sin because of Jesus. Stand firm, therefore, Galatians And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept the idea that you can be justified based on your own obedience and good works or anything else, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law and you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. He doesn't pull punches. He lets them know, this is serious. There is only one gospel. It is worth protecting, and I will protect that gospel, and I will protect the church. But what about for us? I don't know about you, but I don't lay in bed worrying much about the idea of circumcision or obeying the 613 laws of the Old Testament. It just doesn't seem like that relevant to us, if we're honest. Unfortunately, as we read the text, the text always reads us. To assume somehow that a letter written 2,000 years ago means nothing for a bunch of Oklahomans in the 21st century is foolish, has eternal ramifications and immediate ramifications. So if Paul were here today, what would he say to you and to me? Based on like the eternal timeless principles that are presented in the book of Galatians, what can we learn? The truths about who God is and who we are and what the future holds. I think the first thing that Paul would tell us would be a message directed to those who are not in a right relationship with Jesus. He would say this, that there are no pre-existing conditions, there are no experiences from your past that prevent any person from being justified by God through faith in Jesus. I think you understand that language. Some people have a hard time getting health care because of pre-existing conditions that they have health-wise. The gospel's different than healthcare. It's not a get out of jail free card. The gospel's different than that. And Paul says this, one of the more famous verses in Galatians, verse 24 through 29 of chapter 3. So then, the law was our guardian. It was like a teacher. It was like a protector until Christ came. It was temporary in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, now that he's fulfilled the promises of God, we are no longer under the guardian. We're no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Through faith in Christ, there is no pre-existing condition or experience that you have that can prevent you from today putting your faith in Jesus and having a right relationship with God now and forever. There's nothing. Nothing about your identity. Nothing you've ever done. Nothing you've ever thought. Nothing you've ever said that can keep you from a right relationship with God if you would simply trust Jesus for your sins. Quit being foolish enough to think that you can do it on your own. Or that it doesn't really matter. Or that this is all there is and you're just going to... Lights go out someday. Don't be a fool. If you want to have any hope in tomorrow, if you want to be secure in who you are today, you've got to look back and remember the past. You've got to remember Jesus and what he has done to secure salvation for you freely. The other thing I think Paul would tell us is that we, now the believers, okay, all of you who have already put your faith in Jesus and have now a right relationship with God, we have to know the truth and we have to protect the truth. There is one gospel and it is worth defending. That's what he would tell us. You may think that there's not competing messages out there about Jesus, but that would be a fool's thought. There are and many of them are in this church because I've had the conversations with some people. Those gospels that teach things like all you have to do is pray a prayer one time in your heart and you don't actually have to make Jesus the king over your life. This easy believism, this cheap grace that somehow now that Jesus has come and won salvation for all who would put their faith, means that now we can just live however we want. That there's no requirements on us. Read Galatians 5 and you'll understand that that's not true. Maybe it's the prosperity gospel. That if you just pray the right prayer in the right sequence with the right attitude, your 401k will double. Your income will increase by 10% because God just wants you to be happy. And if you, God helps those who help themselves, that really God wants you to feel very comfortable in this life now. This word of faith theology that if you have the right sequence of words with the right attitude, that you can manipulate the power of God to heal people. It's false. And those who teach it are accursed. Moralism. A lot of people believe that somehow, if you just do more good than bad, you'll tip the scales and God will owe you salvation. It's foolish. Maybe it's a sterilized gospel that's voided the message of the cross. Somehow you don't actually need the work of our Savior dying in our place for our sins to have the victory that he has. Or maybe it's a universalism. And this one's big. That really, really we're all on a path to God. 
that it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't really ma- matter what religion you are. You know, Christians may believe that Jesus is the only way, but eh, it's not really true. They can believe it just as long as they don't push it on me. It is a disease. It needs to be cut out, thrown away forever. Jesus is the only way to peace with God. The only way. As the band comes up, the last thing I think Paul would tell us, honestly, he already did. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you. As I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness and keep an eye on yourself. Peter was fooled. Remember that? Peter was fooled. Barnabas, Paul says, was fooled. Keep watch on yourself, believers, all you who consider yourself faithful, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, deceives himself, that's pride. God desires a humble heart. But let each one test his own work. Now this is talking of salvation. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor, for he will have to bear his own load. You're not going to be judged by someone else. You're going to be judged based on you, your faith. In Jesus, in his finished work, let each one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is mocked, not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will reap the flesh and reap corruption. But the one who sows the spirit will live from the spirit and reap eternal life. It's important to remember And what we're going to do now is our weekly act of remembrance. For those of you who have been justified because of your faith in the faithful one, we're going to take communion together. You can come up with your families or your life group or friends, whoever. Those of you who are faithful and remember when God called you. Remember that moment in which you put your faith in him and you were baptized into him and you put on Christ. Remember that time in which you died to self so that you can live in Christ, so that the life you live now is not a life of the flesh, but it is a life of faith in Christ Jesus. 
Remember, because it's important to remember that our salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone.